so the way you work out your plans and your purposes for us, your people, Lord, it should astound us, your grace that extends to us beyond anything that we could ever imagine. So, Lord, I pray that today as we look at your word, we would celebrate that grace, that we would know that we belong to you. Lord, and if anyone is here today and they do not know you as their Lord and Savior, I pray that today would be the day where the good news of the gospel would be heard, the good news of your grace, not their works. Lord, that they would come to believe, trust in this providential sovereign grace that's poured out on them. And Lord, I pray now for our children as they head back to OPBC Kids Worship. I pray for the workers back there. I pray that as the gospel is proclaimed to them and they hear the good news of Jesus through these stories, through their singing, through the love that's shown to them, I pray that today their hearts would be turned to you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, happy Mother's Day once again to all the moms. And I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 28 or 38. And all the kids are now dismissed to go back to OPBC Kids Worship, your favorite part of the service. And if you are a guest or visitor with us and this is your first time and you want to walk your child back, they'll get you settled in the back and you can come back and join us in just a moment. This is always a great time for the kids to go back and they, we call it noisy joy around here. That's what we're after, noisy joy. So, but I expect you guys to be completely silent while I preach. I'm just kidding. Um, Genesis chapter 38, Genesis chapter 38. We are walking our way through the book of Genesis, and then after Genesis, guess what comes next? I'm just glad you knew that, because otherwise I'd have to start all over and we have to memorize at least what the second book of the Bible was. So, yes, we're just walking our way through the Bible. Um, And if you're a guest or visitor with us, we just want you to know we believe what's in here. And we believe it's written not just so that we could have interesting stories to read, but because we believe God has ordained this word. He's inspired this word to transform us. As we read it and as His Spirit speaks through the Word, we believe that we actually are changed by what we read because God is working. And so even a passage like Genesis chapter 38, how many of you read ahead? Does anybody read ahead? Yeah, so even a passage like Genesis chapter 38 is meant to transform us and change us. And if you haven't read it, you'll understand why I said even Genesis chapter 38 in just a moment. This is one of those passages when we come to this where... There was even one man who once said that this passage of Scripture should never be read in a church. I think that's a bold statement. I'm not sure if uh, God approves of that message, so I'm not going to go with that message. I, I, I searched online for sermons uh, on Genesis 38. They are few and far between. People aren't quite sure what to do with, with it sometimes, and I wasn't quite sure what to do with it. And then it happened that this passage ends up on Mother's Day. Fortunately, there is a woman named Tamar in the story, so we'll get to Mother's Day at some point. But uh, I don't want you to think this is going to be your typical Mother's Day sermon. Once we get about halfway through the passage, you'll know it's not going to be your typical Mother's Day sermon. But what I do want you to understand is God is working for His purposes, even when it seems like the whole thing is jacked up and broken. We've been looking at... Abraham's family for a while now. Abraham had Isaac. Isaac had Jacob and Esau. And now Jacob has had his 12 sons. And they are all losers. Every last one of them is a loser. Every last one of them seems to find really good stuff in the blessings of God and in the covenant of God. And they just ruin it. Left and right. 
And now we come to a man named Judah. A couple of weeks ago, Kenny kicked off this last scene, this last act of Genesis with the story of Joseph. And if you'll remember Joseph, he's, he's one of the younger sons of Jacob. And he's the favored son because he came from Jacob's favorite wife. So there were ten sons and then there's a son. And then all of a sudden he's like the favorite. So you can imagine how everybody else felt about this guy. And then he went around flaunting his favoritism, right? He's like, look how great I am, and I'm going to be ruling over you one day. Now, all of this was true, but as you can imagine, if you have siblings, that didn't go well. So his siblings decided, his brothers decided to kill him. He said, two sisters are going to laugh at each other over here, and I'm going to get a little scared in the middle of the sermon. Okay, so his brothers decided to kill him. Well, then... Let's get a little more reasonable. Let's not kill him. Let's just sell him into slavery. We'll make some money off of this, and we won't kill him. We won't have his blood on our hands. So, as you know, they sold him into slavery, and he's sent down into Egypt. And then they go back to Dad with his coat of many colors, this cloak that would identify who he was, and they covered it with goat's blood and said he was killed by a wild animal. This family, if you know anything about it, over the past few weeks we've seen, they're just full of deception left and right. And so now Jacob Jacob is in disarray and he is completely in despair. His son is actually in slavery in Egypt. And his other sons are broken. Immoral, ungodly men. What do you do? Well, we come to chapter 38 and instead of following Joseph on to Egypt, which we'll get to in chapter 39... We actually have a little aside. Before we get to Joseph in Egypt, it's almost like we say, back in Canaan, this is what was going to be happening for the 20 years of Joseph's time while he was in Egypt, going from slave to second in command over all of Egypt. What was happening with Judah during that time? Because interestingly, Joseph is not going to have a major role to play in the story once everybody gets to Egypt. Joseph's role is just to get everybody to Egypt. Judah and his kin are going to have a major part to play in God's providential plan in his redemption story because from Judah's line is going to come one named David. And from David's line is going to come one named Jesus. It's going to be from Judah's line. So we need to pay attention to Judah. So before we jump into this passage, I want to give you two reasons why I think this passage is there beyond God showing his providential work even in the midst of evil. You're going to see a lot of evil and a lot of wrongdoing in this passage. And we're going to see God's providential work because in the end there's going to be two boys born and one of those is going to be the great, 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 great grandfather of David. And that's going to be a good that's going to be good news. But I think beyond that, there's two reasons why it's here. The first is we need to understand Judah. We need to understand his story because he's so important. He's so important that at the end of of the whole Bible, what we're told is Judah and his brothers, their names are all written on the gates of heaven. It's a pretty big deal. My name's not up there. So these guys have got to be a pretty big deal. Okay, There's something about them and how God has chosen them by His grace to be a part of the story from that point on. The nation will be named after him at the split of the kingdom. He's a big part of the story. So understanding Judah and his lineage is going to be important. But also, I believe this is really important. The story we're going to read is so heinous and so ugly that it gives us 
a counterpoint to what we're going to read in chapter 39 and following. In chapter 39, we're going to see Joseph, and he's in Potiphar's house. And there in Potiphar's house, he's going to be tempted. He's going to have opportunity to sin, and he doesn't take the opportunity. He remains holy and blameless before the Lord. Judah, on the other hand, goes and seeks out the sin. And so in all of this darkness, in the next chapter, we're going to see the light. You're going to read all of this darkness in chapter 38, and you're going to say, how could God do anything with these people? And then you're going to come to chapter 39 and say, oh, that's right, God is still working. Because at the end of Genesis, not to give away the ending, but at the end of Genesis, what you're going to read is this. When the whole story of Judah and Joseph and all the brothers is told, this is what Joseph says to his brothers who sold him into slavery. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. I hope you can see that in your life through this passage. My prayer is that today, no matter what evil has been done to you or what evil that you have done, you would be able to see God's grace and providence in it to turn evil to good. He's not the author of evil, but he will use evil to accomplish his purposes. He will use evil people to accomplish his purposes, and he will take evil people, and he will turn them into righteous people in order to accomplish his purposes. That's the good news of the gospel. That while we were his enemies, he made us his friends. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the good news of the gospel, that his grace is sufficient. It's not how well we can live out our lives. And if you're looking for a Mother's Day lesson, moms, there's your Mother's Day lesson. Be a good mom. Be a great mom. But understand that the future of your children and grandchildren does not depend on how great a mom you are. Because some of us had, some people in this room didn't have great moms. And God is still a God of grace to us. God is still pouring out mercy on his people. Oh, that we would be people who would trust God. So I pray that today you'll see God even in the darkness here in chapter 38. So look at, look at it with me. Chapter 38, beginning with verse 1. It happened at that time. What time? When right after Joseph had been sold into slavery. So this is happening at the same time Joseph is going to be going through his 20 years of ascension in Egypt, Judah is going down into the pit. Okay, just think about that. Just see the juxtaposition here. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adullamite whose name was Hira. He no longer wanted to be a part of the family. He didn't want to be a part of the covenant blessings. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. And if you remember, anytime somebody takes a Canaanite wife, it doesn't turn out well for them. From Esau forward, we're just like, we don't, the Canaanite women are not walking with the Lord and they're not good for the family and they're not part of the plan. But there he saw the daughter and he took her. He took her and went into her and she conceived and bore a son and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezib when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. In fact, his name actually is evil backwards. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Okay, let's just stop right there because now things just got wacky, right? But this was the law. This was the law of the land. We see it if you fast forward in the story with Boaz and Ruth, right? You see the kinsman redeemer. This is the same type of idea, except even in the secular world at that time, this was a reality. Because the firstborn son, even if he died before having children, has the right to carry on the inheritance. 
has the right to carry on the name. And so the second-born son would have to take the wife of the first-born son and have a child, and that child would take on the inheritance of the first-born son. Doesn't seem right and doesn't seem fair, but we're, you know, Western and thousands of years later. So, you know, this is the way it was, and this is what was expected, and this was his duty. And instead of doing this, this is what we read about this guy, Onan. He was not a man of integrity. Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so whenever he went into his brother's life, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers, so Tamar went and remained in her father's house. So this is what's happened. Tamar, well, first of all, Judah left his family, found a wife, had three sons, got a wife for his firstborn son. He dies. She's supposed to be going to the second son. He doesn't do what he's supposed to do, so he dies. So now the third son, who's young, he goes, you got to wait until he grows up. When he grows up, then you can have it. But until then, you need to go to your dad's house. I'm not putting up with you. Really what he's saying is, shame on you. Something's wrong with you. It actually says that he's afraid that his third-born son is going to die like the other two. So instead of being a father-in-law who cares for a widow, he pawns her off and sends her back home. He's not caring for her. He is disengaged. He is not a man of integrity. He only wants what he can get out of people. And then in the course of time, the wife of Judah, she was daughter, died. And when Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers. He and his friend Hira, the Dilemite. And sheep shearing time was party time. You go into the city and you drink it up and you find somebody and you just party it up. It was fraternity row in the middle of party time. That was sheep shearing. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Enam which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up and, and she had not been given to him in marriage. You see, she sees there's no hope for me. No way I'm going to be able to bear this child that's going to carry on the family line. So I'm going to take matters into my own hands. And when Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. Isn't that ironic? A goat was killed and its blood spread all over the cloak of many colors in order to deceive his father. Now he's going to hide his sin with a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. She thinks quickly and she says, Those things that would identify who you are. No one else would have this signet and this cord. No one else would have this staff. They were individual to Judah. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adolamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. Uh-oh. And he asked the men of the place, Where is the cult prostitute who was at Anaim at the roadside? And they said, No cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also the men of the place said, No cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, Let her keep the things as her own. 
or we shall be laughed at. Now he's afraid of being shamed for being caught in his sin. You see, I sent this young goat and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. Do you see the self-righteousness here? It's the self-righteousness because he doesn't know that he was the one who got her pregnant. And she was being, as she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, Please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah, recognizing he was caught like an episode of Jerry Springer, said, I've never seen Jerry Springer, I'm just guessing. Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah. This is his breakthrough moment where he begins to see the error of his ways. Isn't it important sometimes to even be shamed into repentance and humility? And he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And she was, when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out, and she said, What a breach, or what a breakthrough you have made for yourself. Therefore his name was called Perez. Afterward his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Once again, twins at war coming out of the womb, and the younger, the, the second one is going to supplant the first. Perez is going to be the one. The, even though he didn't make the first breach, he made the full breach. And God is going to use him and bless him as well. This is God's word, and I struggled really hard with why it's in the Bible. I struggled really hard because I, we could just go on to Jacob and get everybody to Egypt, and we can move on with this story because then they could make like the Prince of Egypt, and we could have cartoons made after this, and or we could make the Ten Commandments movie, and then we're happy because we all get to a place where we understand what's going on. But this passage, this passage is difficult difficult for us as believers to find ourselves, put ourselves in this story and understand how in the world this could relate to our lives. But I want to give you a couple of things today that I hope will help relate these things to your lives because as in some of the other stories in Genesis it's really difficult when we see such heinous evil to say I'm guilty of that sort of thing because none of us would ever do what's on the pages of scripture in this chapter. We would never see ourselves in this position but I just want to make sure you understand that the root cause of so much that was going on is something we deal with in our lives. First of all, I want you to see in Judah's life. Judah is a man who's looking for greener grass. He's got a lot of baggage. His family has hurt him. His family's a bunch of losers. His family keeps saying they're spiritual and they're following after God, and every single one of them seems to be a hypocrite. And he wants out. you got to think about Judah. Judah is the unwanted son of the unwanted wife of Jacob. He wants gone from that. He wants out from under all of that reality. He wants greener grass. The only problem with greener grass is this. Sometimes the green grass is greener because it has a lot more manure in it. Right? And when he went seeking the greener grass, what he forgot was most of his problems in his life may not have had anything to do with anyone else because he could not escape from himself. You ever found that in your life? Because I've found that in my life where you go, if only my circumstances would change, 
then everything would change for me. So I move on or I go on to a new situation. The only thing that goes with me is me. For some reason, my problems continue. Anybody else or am I the only one? Because I, I feel like this is probably a general humanity issue where we like to look at the other people in our lives or the circumstances in our lives and blame those, and then we find ourselves in different circumstances with some of the same problems. Why? Because greener grass is just a myth. If your grass isn't green, it may be because you killed it. And if you go on to greener grass, guess what's going to happen to that grass? If you haven't changed, your grass is going to die again. I want to make sure we understand this because he's carrying with him all of his desires. All of his vices are following him. All of his deceit is following him. All of his self-destruction is following him. And then he's going to take a second step. It's not just that he has all this ingrained in him and it's like a family curse on him, but he's actually taking all of the sin that was done to him and he's going to start dishing it out. All of the sin that was inherited is now going to be practiced sin. Let me give you an example of what this looks like. Maybe this is you. This is a dangerous thing to say. Don't raise your hand unless you want to do like this. Is that right? Anybody have a passive-aggressive parents? Probably a mom. Anybody have a passive-aggressive mom? Don't want to admit it. I know, but just smile a little bit. If not, I know what you're talking about. Anybody with a passive-aggressive mom find yourself being passive-aggressive? You see what happens? What happens? And, and, and how about your kids? What are the things that you are bothered by the most in your children? The things that remind you of yourself in them? Right? See, what happens is inherited sins become practice sins. And this was what happened to Judah. All of the deceit that he saw at home now becomes deceit that he dishes out. All of the using people that happened back home becomes using people. All of the lack of self-control that he saw back home now becomes lack of self-control in his life. All of that is a reality that I think we can begin to relate to. And if we can identify the fact that we're taking, we're blaming other people for our sin. We're blaming other people in the injustice that was done to us for the injustice that we do to other people. How many of us, oh, but you don't understand. It's just not fair. I tell my girls, and I want my girls to understand this, um, and I, I tell everybody on volleyball teams, whatever it may be, I said, you can't control what other people do. You can only control your response. But oftentimes we take what's done to us as license to respond in kind. And all that we would be people who would understand that what God is leading us to is He's leading us away from the self-destruction, away from the deceit, away from the sinful desires. So where does Judah find himself? He's, he finds himself leaving hypocrisy to just walk into utter sin. I don't know that that's an exchange that any of us want to make. To leave hypocrisy to walk into utter sin. But that's where he finds himself. Now he finds himself on party row. It's time to go crazy. Sheep shearing time. Get our buddies together. Shear some sheep. I mean, this is this is the reality, right? It, I kind of liken it to if you've ever watched uh, the the fishing shows or anything like that. On, I know some of you have, but the crabbing shows. 
right? You know what I'm talking. And they all come back into town. They've all been out on the boat for a month, and they all come back into town. And when they all come back into town, you can have 300 people in a city, right? And then all of the fishermen come back, and you have 300 people in 73 bars, right? That's what happens. That's what's happening at sheep shearing time. All the bars are full. They're coming in and they're partying. And he finds himself. Here's Tamar, who's been unjustly treated. She's been discarded. She has been widowed. She's been exploited. She's been shamed. She's been abandoned. And she's going to get hers, right? She's now, all the injustice that's been done to her, she's going to dish out a little injustice as well. So all of this injustice comes about that Tamar now, in her plight, in her trap, is I want you to see God's providence in spite of the evil in the midst of what she's doing. Even as a victim, Tamar was not going to remain innocent. How often is that the truth in our lives? That we may be victims of injustice, but our response is to make other people victims of our injustice. Oh, that we would not take this route, but we would be able to stop and see God is God can and will as I am his child. God can and will take all the injustice upon himself. And he says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, and he will take care of me. He will accomplish his purposes for me. He is good for me. And even in the midst of evil, I can trust him to do good for me, to accomplish his will for me. But Tamar, in this moment, she takes matters into her own hands in order to get justice, in order to have this security and this inheritance. She takes matters into her own hands and gets her revenge. God is not blind to her plight. God lifts up the downtrodden. He cares for the widow. He cares for the ones who are unjustly treated. Injustice is something God hates, and we can trust God to reverse injustice to accomplish His purposes and His will because He's good. God is not blind to her plight or to her purposes. I ask you, can you trust, can we trust God enough to be good enough, even in the middle of evil, even in the middle of injustice? Can we trust Him? Because I want you to see the breakthrough that comes when all of the sin is exposed and God shows Himself to be glorious and triumphant, seated on the throne, God's providence woven through the story. So as we close, all the backdrop now, I want you to see the close of the story. Because I want you to see the good news here. It's all bad news so far. It's all darkness. It's all, ugh. I mean, there's so many times in Genesis where we just read and we go, ugh. Like, what in the world? But how often is life like that? How often do you turn on the TV and it's, ugh. How often do you deal with coworkers? And it's, ugh. How many people in your life you're like, if they would just get it together? You, you know, people are incapable of getting it together, right? We just don't have it in us. People are incapable of fixing their own junk. Only God can do that. And oftentimes it takes humiliation and shame. Oftentimes it takes getting caught. That was Judah's breakthrough. Judah's breakthrough came when he got caught. He got caught in his sin. How often in our lives do we have private or secret sins, personal sins, and we just say, oh, I hope nobody ever finds out about this. 
maybe you've spoken those words or thought those words before. I just hope nobody ever finds out about it. You do realize God already knows. I need to be reminded of that in my life. Somebody already knows. And even if nobody knows other than God, people are still going to be hurt. But I want you to be reminded, God already knows your sin, and He loves you anyway. He loves you in spite of your sin, and He's working good for you in spite of your sin. He's more powerful than your sin. He's more gracious than your sin. I want you to hear that good news today, because that's what happens with Judah. Judah gets caught, and he's brought to a place where he actually can look Tamar in the face when she goes, tell me whose these are, because this is whose child it is. And he takes his staff and his signet and his cord and he goes, she is more righteous than I am. Because I should have given her to my son, protected her, cared for her. But now even in her unrighteous actions, she's far more righteous than I am. He's brought to a place of humility and repentance. I don't know what sin you're dealing with in your life, but I just want you to hear this because I need to hear this. Sin is not meant to be managed and dealt with by you. Sin is meant to be killed. That's why it took Jesus to the cross. Sin isn't something to mess around with. Sin isn't something to manage and hope I'll never get caught. The wages of sin is death. So today, if you're sitting here and you go, I know this needs to change, but I just hold on to it for a little bit longer. My prayer is that you won't have to be brought to a place of humiliation and shame. But God will deal with sin in His children's lives. Oftentimes in my life, it's been humiliation. When I'm brought to that place of brokenness, I'm brought to a place of repentance and humility. That's what happens with Judah here. And the good news is when there's repentance and humility, there comes restoration. In Judah's life, this is what the restoration looks like. He's restored to his relationship with Tamar, his daughter-in-law. He doesn't go into her anymore, but he cares for her. He has two sons. From his line will come the king, the greatest earthly king of all time. From his line will come the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, King of Heaven and Earth. He's a blessed man. Restored to a relationship with his father, he's going to return back to his father's house, to his father's tent. And what we're going to see is at the end of Joseph's story, when everything is being made right in Egypt, Judah is going to be a major player in that story, coming back to his father to comfort him, to care for him. See, what God can do is when He breaks through our sin, brings us to a place of repentance and humility, He brings us to a place of restoration. So you may say, I've hurt too many people, I've run too far. He says, no, no distance is too far. No hurt is too great. That God's grace cannot cover. My prayer is you would grab that grace by faith trust him to deal with your sin. But Judah's not the only one who had a breakthrough. Tamar did as well, and in both of their stories, there's this reality. 
you do not have to be crushed by your sin. Your sin does not need to crush you. You can be redeemed, restored, made new. You can experience grace that pulls you out of the pit. Isn't it an interesting thing that in chapter 37 they threw Joseph into the pit and by the end of chapter 38 it's Judah who's in the pit? They sold Joseph into slavery but really it was Judah who was a slave to his own passions, his own lusts, his own desires. Oh, you need to be set free. I need to be set free. And your sin does not need to crush you. Your failures do not need to crush you. No, God can and will restore His people. He'll take the hardest hearts and make them new. So if you're here today as a mom, let's speak directly to the moms right now, and you have someone in your life, a child or grandchild, whose heart seems so hard, know that you should be a good mom or grandma. You should do everything necessary to be a good mom or grandma. But being a good mom or grandma to them is pointing them to the only one who can change hard hearts. Pointing them to Jesus takes hard hearts and restores people. He demonstrates grace. My prayer for you is that you wouldn't take the guilt and the shame of that on to yourself. But you would give all that guilt and shame to Jesus. But let me do the math for you. Let me make sure you understand what I'm saying. If there is sin and brokenness and hard-heartedness in someone in your family's life, there is shame and reproach that comes with that. What would you tell them? You wouldn't look at them as, you should be ashamed. You should, you should be telling them you can give that shame and that sin and that reproach to Jesus. Moms, I want you to know that same message. All the shame and reproach that comes from having someone that like that in your family, you can give all of that shame and reproach to Jesus too. Be free from it. You do not have to be crushed. You don't have to be crushed. If you look at your life as a mom and you say, I failed, you don't have to be crushed by that. You don't have to be crushed by that because Jesus was crushed for you. And you can trust Him. But there is a second person in the story and her name is Tamar. Tamar is fascinating to me in the rest of the biblical narrative, the rest of God's redemptive plan. Because while Judah's name is on a tribe and Judah's name is on a nation and Judah's name is on heaven's gates, she gets her name directly linked to Jesus. Think about this. This is Tamar, the Canaanite. Tamar, the outsider. Tamar, outside the plan of God. Outside the promise and the covenant of God but not outside the love of God. Not outside of grace. God pours out grace. God pulls her into the covenant. God pulls her into the story. And here's this woman who knew nothing of God and His greatness, and now she will be a major part of the story. She's going to have two sons. Perez is going to be the one from whom ten generations later will come David. And that perfect picture of God's perfect plan is, is played out right here in Scripture. So, so think about Tamar and her breakthrough. God's purposes and mercy transformed the plight of Tamar into a glorious plan of God's redemption. She went from condemned prostitute to a justified family member. She went from a shamed and discarded woman to a position of honor in God's plan. She went from a Gentile outside of the covenant to a mother of the promised one. God's great grace takes cursed people 
and makes them family members. Hear me on this. God's great grace takes those who are cursed by sin and death and brings them not just to church, but into the family. We get to call him Father. He takes all of the shamed ones, all the discarded ones, and he brings them close and gives them his righteousness. All of his goodness, all of his perfection covers our unrighteousness. All of our shame covered by his perfection. Jesus' great grace takes all of the blamed and exchanges an innocent Savior for them. And Tamar got to taste that grace. How do I know Tamar got to taste that grace? Because she's brought into the family. She's brought into the covenant. And we have evidence of that in other places in Scripture. And there's two places I want you to turn. So if you have a Bible, which you should, because we're actually looking at the Bible. Um, I actually want you to turn really quickly to Ruth chapter 4 and to Matthew chapter 1. I just want you to see it real quick. Because in these two passages, what we learn is there is hope for those who are of all nations because of Tamar. Because of what God does through Tamar is a picture of his design for all the nations. And there is a hope for all of those who are in places of shame and scandal that God can cause by his grace you to be brought out into marvelous light and into a family. Look at Ruth chapter 4. Ruth chapter 4 verse 18 says this. Now these are the generations of Perez, the son of Tamar. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amenadab. Amenadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Just, just for a second, recognize this. David is the quintessential king of the Israelite people. This nation that was promised by God. And who's the mother? Tamar. I I just think that's fascinating. That God took a Gentile and made the mother of the Israelite people. God took an outsider, an outcast, full of scandal. And his scandalous grace covered all of her unrighteousness and brought her into the family. But then Matthew 1 is even better. If David's great, Jesus is better. Yeah? I think we can agree with that. If David's great, Jesus is better. And this is what Matthew chapter 1 says. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. This is really cool. And if you go on, you're going to see a couple of other names in there. Ruth and Rahab. A couple of facts about all three of these ladies. None of them were Jews. None of them were Israelites. All Gentiles. And God folded them into his plan. Hey, that's really good news for those of us who aren't Jews. you're here today and you were not born in Israel or born of a Jewish descent here's good news for you Tamar Ruth Rahab now if I read this genealogy 
I would expect to see these names. Sarah. Rebecca. Leah. Rachel. Yeah? I mean, these are the real women of the faith. In Genesis, we get Tamar. We get Ruth. An Edomite. We get Rahab. Possibly even a prostitute. In Jericho. All scandalous. Remember Ruth's story? Husband dies, and I don't know what was going on on the threshing floor. Right? All could have been scandalous, and yet God takes all of that scandal and turns it by His grace into something even more scandalous, that He would take those who are outside and bring them in. Those who are sinners and make them family members. Those who are cursed and make them daughters of the Most High. I want you to see today, moms, you don't have to be a Sarah. I was watching videos to show, because I like to show these nifty little videos on Sunday mornings, you know, really to transition the band up to the stage and that sort of thing. And I was like, wow, let's find a nifty little video. And there was one, and it was like, for all the Sarahs and for all the Rachels, I was like, what about the Tamars? Because I don't know about you, but when I read Scripture, I do not liken myself to Paul unless it's Paul before he got saved. Right? Most of the time I go, yeah, not quite as great as those people. Now, you might not be as nefarious as Tamar today, but here's what I want you to know. And moms, this should release you. I pray that this is grace to you coming from me, and I pray that this is of the Lord, but I want you to hear this. Your kids, your grandkids, your great-grandkids, the generations that will come. We'll be blessed if you are a good mom and a good grandma and a good great-grandma. If you love them and you cook really well for them, and as John said, hit them with a spoon every once in a while, right? If you do all of the things that the quintessential mom does, they will they'll be blessed. There's going to be good that comes from them. They'll be able to put bumper stickers on their cars and say, you know, they're you're proud of your honor roll student at such and such elementary school and it's going to be awesome. But if your kids and your grandkids and your great-grandkids die thinking you're great and not knowing how great Jesus is, you are not a good mom. And I hope you see the grace in that. Because what God is doing is He's saying to moms, He's saying through Tamar, He's saying to each of you as moms, no matter how bad you mess this thing up, my grace is for you. No matter how badly you go your own way, my grace is greater. So moms, this is my, ch- my charge to you today. Make sure your kids and your grandkids and your great-grandkids and whoever you come in contact with know how great God is because that will serve them a lot better than thinking you're a great mom. I give my mom a hard time sometimes. I gave my mom a hard time her whole life. I still give my mom a hard time sometimes, and she died several years ago. And here's how I give her a hard time. My mom was not my friend. 
my mom and I didn't get along. If I had a rule when I came to visit, I came home for two days. And then I took off. Because that was enough for her and for me. My mom and I were way too much alike to get along. My mom was not my friend. You've heard me say this for years. But what my mom did is I can rise up and call her blessed because my mom told me how great Jesus is. My mom will long be forgotten for her meals because her spaghetti was the worst thing I've ever eaten in my entire life. And you just come home, and I'd come home from college, and she'd be like, I made spaghetti for you. And I'm like, I could have eaten better in the cafeteria at school. But you just choke it down, you know? Thanks, Mom. Oh, this will make it into a sermon illustration at some point, 20 years from now. My, My mom, she made some things really well, and some things she should never have tried to make. I'll tell you fun stories about her cooking at some point. But I want you to know, my mom was not a whiz in the kitchen. My mom kept an orderly house and a, and a tidy house and a clean house. And My mom was organized in her life. But what my mom taught me more than anything else is, um, when you tell somebody that you're going to pray for them, pray for them. Right then, and then write it down, and you keep praying for that person until they tell you that the prayer is ministry. My mom taught me that. My mom taught me that I can trust Jesus in the midst of the greatest hardships. She spent 20 years every day assuming she was going to lose her husband that day. And my mom taught me how to do that. My mom taught me how to walk through hardship and know that God is bigger. My mom taught me that Christ is bigger than cancer. My mom asked me to come in and meet with the hospice care when the time came. Not the other kids, me. And she taught me as she spoke to the hospice nurse, she taught me what it looks like to trust the Lord as she went to the end of her life. My mom taught me God is greater. I'm thankful for that. I won't remember... I won't remember a lot of the lessons she taught me. I won't remember a lot of the hugs because there weren't that many. I won't remember the fights. I just won't. I don't remember those anymore. What I remember is my my mom taught me God is greater. My mom's the one who taught me Jesus is real. Moms, you are free to fail at a lot as moms. This is grace's greater. But don't fail at that one thing. Make that the one legacy you leave your kids and grandkids. That Jesus is real. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that your grace is greater, your providence is greater, your plan is greater, your purposes are greater. You are greater than even our sin. And Lord, we may feel the weight
weight of our sin today and feel like we are sinking fast. Lord, I pray that you would cause a breakthrough in our lives of your grace. Not a breakthrough to greater things in this world, but a breakthrough to understanding. You're going to be brought low to humility. Lord, the breakthrough we need is not to greater riches, greater fame, greater fortune, greater plans and purposes. Lord, we have you and your plans and purposes. What we need is a breakthrough to of your grace to bring us low, to bring us to humility, to bring us to repentance bring us to faith. So I pray that for us today. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand together as we sing. Love lifted me.